said earlier, one of the things that really struck me as we have began this series on preparing for Easter, beginning this journey together. A journey, of course, which is going to take us to a Friday, which we call Good Friday, that day of sadness on our part as we see the cost of sin, but it doesn't end there. That journey continues on to an empty tomb, to that moment when we realise that Jesus is in fact victorious. And everything he said he was going to do, he has done, he has achieved. And he would soon ascend to reign at the Father's right hand. One of the things that really struck me through this in joining with the lectionary and also using this in the daily devotional things that I've been sending out as well, the verses have all been drawn from the lectionary as well, is just the powerful flow of God's mercy that runs through the verses that have been drawn in to the Easter narrative. Time and time again we are reminded of it and we are reminded of it again this morning. And what an amazing mercy our God has. And holding that in our mind as followers of Jesus should encourage us to draw near to him and not feel the need to shrink back. It should encourage us to recognize that this is a God that loves us and welcomes us and desires for us to be in his presence and not one that we need to skirt about and do X, Y, and Z to try and earn his approval and feel that we somehow merit his attention. We have his attention because he loves us in these remarkable ways. There are a few different things that I want us to look through this morning as we look into these verses. There is a lot going on in these verses, so we're not going to manage to touch on absolutely everything that they say, but there are some really key things that I want us to take a note of that Jesus is speaking about in these verses. And the first of these is the plan of God. And the first thing I want us to home in on when it comes to that is Moses and mercy. We read those verses earlier from Numbers 21 about the peculiar events that happened in the wilderness. Of course, you have the people of Israel, and one of the the mistake that they had made is that they had gotten resentful. They had forgotten all the things that God had done for them. They'd forgotten the, the exodus and how God is actually their liberator, the one that's lifted them out of slavery and promised them this new future in the promised land. On that journey, they'd forgotten that part of the story and they'd homed in on some of the difficulties and challenges they're experiencing at that moment in time. So they are having a go at Moses in quite stern ways, but also actually they're having a go at God as well. They are not happy at all with what they're experiencing. As we, we see that, we say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. They loathe that worthless food that is being provided for them at that point. And so there is this re- response, this is all we would see it as quite peculiar as these fiery serpents begin to start biting the people and they begin dying. And whether they link serpents to Genesis, which some commentators would argue they would and they, they recognise they succumb to temptation, it's not clear at all in these verses, but they realise that they have sinned and that they need the mercy of God. So they ask Moses to pray 
They asked Moses to go before God and to bring some sort of hope and answer to their prayer. And what happens? Even though they've grumbled, even though they've forgotten, even though they've had a go at Moses and at God himself, as the people turn and recognise that what they've done is not the right way to handle things, that they have sinned against God, as Moses goes before God and asks for mercy, mercy is given. It's given in a way we might find slightly unusual as well because he's instructed to make a snake and stick it on a stick and put it in the air. Now, this was a bronze serpent. I'm not entirely sure how heavy it would have been or how big it actually was. But the people could have responded to this with a, what? I'm not doing that. That's, that's nonsense. And in some ways you would think that is quite a rational response, as I'm sure Peter would confirm. If you're bitten by a poisonous snake, the cure isn't to look at a snake on a stick. It wouldn't, medically speaking, work. But yet they'd find, they got to a place here where they actually recognised that God was working in his mercy, and they looked to this, and they lived. God's ways were unusual, but God's ways were to bring mercy to his people as they turned and sought after him. So Jesus links that to his own death. The Son of Man will be lifted up, he tells them. And just like we, we see with this story in Numbers, God's intent through Jesus Christ is to bring mercy and to bring hope to the people of this world. What really fascinated me about the, the linking of these two stories is we actually see that Although, of course, God's plan in Christ is unique and it is a final plan. We also see very similar events of God's motive and actions in the Old Testament to bring mercy to the people as well. So the plan is unique, but the motive and the action of God is actually consistent with how we see him respond to people as they ask for his help in the Old Testament as well. And it struck me, one of the things that we'll often hear as Christians lamenting about our culture, as it moves into a, a, pro, a progressively more secular society, and there, there are less and less spaces that God, or the concept of God, is welcome. It can seem, actually at times, directly hostile to any kind of mention and concept to God. Yet, as we see, as we're reminded in Numbers and also through what Jesus is talking about here, our culture might be trying to forget about God, but God is not in the business of forgetting about the people. There is hope, because God is hope, because God is mercy, and because God will seek to act. So we can lament, and we can recognize that there are trials, there are struggles, there are difficulties, and things are changing. But we can also have hope, we can have faith, and we can be prayerful because of the God that we know. So he's a merciful God, and I want us to home in on that. He is a God of mercy. Jesus speaks about he's going to be lifted up. He's alluding to that moment when he, God himself, is going to face and experience death. And he's doing it not because he's a thrill seeker, not because he fancies trying something new. He's doing it to bring hope, a new form of hope, to this world. 
God embracing death to break its power. God becoming sin so that we can be free of it. So that how it dictates and controls our lives would be fundamentally different. This is what God was seeking to do. And it's an action that he's doing to try and inspire faith. That we believe in Jesus. And I wrestled with that. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? We all believe in lots of different things. Like for instance, I believe my car will start tomorrow morning. Or certainly I hope my car will start tomorrow morning. There is a chance it might not. But the belief that we have in God is a, is a, is a transforming kind of belief. It's a belief in one who has done all that is required so that we can know God as our Abba Father. It's a belief in one when we place our trust and hope in him. That we don't have to scratch at the ground. We don't have to seek to earn God's approval. But that we can draw near to him and know him as our Abba Father. And as I pondered that, I challenged myself, do I have... And how strong is my belief that Jesus is those things for me? And how much can it at times drift to, I need to do X, Y, and Z? Jesus has done all that we need to draw near to God. What God is asking for is that we believe in his Son. Because that is the faith that brings transformation. It's a faith that believes that Jesus has accomplished what the Bible says. That he is the one that's broken the power of sin and death. That he has set us free. That our trust in him has made us right with God and it's not earned, as we're reminded in Ephesians, but it is a gift. It's a living faith. It's not something that's mere intellectual knowledge, but a faith which leads to a relationship with God himself. So it's a transforming faith, but I also want to highlight it's a faith that brings eternal life. I want to begin that with a question. What is eternal life? What, what comes to our minds when we think of eternal life? Is it simply what happens when we die? When we're no longer here on earth? Is that what we think of as eternal life? Is it all about heaven and, and, and not much at all to do with life? Eternal life... And the kind of life that Jesus is speaking about is more than simply heaven. To have eternal life, and this is a quote from the the Tyndale commentary, to have eternal life is to know God, i.e. to be in relationship with him and to experience all the blessings that flow from that, both in the present age and in the age to come. And this is also what Jesus tells us in John 17 verse 3 as well. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ to whom you have sent. So eternal life isn't simply about heaven and going there. Eternal life is about knowing God now. That is a huge part of it as well. It doesn't begin when we die. It begins when we discover Jesus Christ and our Lord and as our Saviour. At that moment we are reconciled with God. The relationship with God begins. Life with God begins at that point. It's the beginning of eternal life for it is life with God and life for God. 
And yes, of course, blind, when death does come, this will take on a different meaning, but it begins now we experience God now. Eternal life isn't something that happens when we die. Eternal life is something that begins when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. It begins at that moment when we make him our Lord, when we become part of his kingdom, that place that Jesus is Lord and reigns. So we are in that place. If we have given our life to Jesus Christ, we are in that place where we are beginning to experience those things now. And that was the plan of God. That as Jesus comes and as Jesus brings this new hope to the world, as he's lifted up and experiences the crucifixion, that people who place their trust in him and begin to experience that eternal life, that relationship with God, knowing God, that it's the core thing that we know God now in our lives and we have an experience of him. So this is the plan of God. But I also wanted to look a little bit at the motivation of God. Why he did this. Why he acted in this way. And lifting some very obvious themes from our verses, he did it because he loves this world. In one of the best known verses in scripture, John 3.16, it tells us that God so loves this world that he sent his one and only son. That's the reason that God has acted in these ways. He did it because of love. It's not out of ego to try and beat the devil. It's not simply to claim back what is his, although he has achieved these things as well. God acted in Christ because he loves you. Sat here this morning. God loves you. There are many things we can have doubts about and have question marks about, but this is one of the overriding declarations of Scripture. That God loves each and every one of us. And it sounds so obvious and so familiar that Jesus loves you, God loves you. It's something that we hear all the time. It's part of our narrative that I actually question, does it hit our hearts anymore? Or is it something we just go, oh, ah, yeah, that's lovely, wonderful. I'm going to go make myself a cup of tea now. <clears throat> is it so familiar that the power and, the, and the, the good news of that doesn't hit our hearts and our minds, that the creator and sustainer of all things loves you unconditionally, completely, enough to send his son to draw each and every one of us back to him? And it's not because he's misunderstood who we are. You know, some people will stick us on a pedestal and they'll think that we are, for lack of a better phrase, perfect. They will think we're X, Y, and Z. And at some point, they might realize, actually, we're not. I saw a really interesting quote, and I can't remember for the life of me who said it now, which is terrible. But the quote says, God knows the worst of us and yet loves us more completely than anyone else. He knows every single thing about us and he loves us completely. It's not because we are perfect and it's not because we will ever be what we define as worthy of it or wonderful or that we're great at not sinning. It's simply because we are. If you are, then God loves you. That's the requirement. Not perfection. Not worthiness, 
not anything else that we would try to add and sneak into how we define and understand God's love about us. God loves us because we are. And he sent his son because he loves us and he wants us to experience this eternal life and to know him. So God loves this world and God's aim was to bring salvation to this world. God's love prompted him to act in that way that he would bring salvation to this world. And we see that in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I'd like us to sit with that one for just a wee second. That the intent of God as he sent his son was not to condemn this world, but that through his son this world might be saved. Let's just sit with that for just a little second because I think at times as Christians we miss some of the important nuances and points that a verse such as this is trying to make. God's intention in Christ was to bring salvation, not condemnation. That was his overriding intent. It was a positive action. And that positive action brought a message which was declared good news. The gospel. Hope for this world. As I was pondering and reflecting that, one of the things that was playing in my mind is often I think the message can become about condemnation. I think sometimes the message that churches can proclaim can sometimes be more about condemnation. That what we are declaring to the world is everything that's wrong. Yet the hope and the message of verses such as these is that God has done everything make it right. The true hope, the message that we're given in verses like these isn't one of condemnation, it's that God has acted to bring salvation, to bring hope. And I think we can be sometimes more comfortable speaking about sin than what we are speaking about the solution to it, which is the gospel. What God has done, what Jesus has done. And that this is the message that he wants taken into the world, that God has acted to bring salvation. And it's a message that we should be considering actually crying from the rooftops, that the power of sin is broken, that death is defeated, that captives are set free, that the blind can see, that those who are separate from God can be reconciled. Those who are heading to death can gain eternal life. Those who are in rebellion to God are now crying out, Thy kingdom come. It's a good news message. The transforming power of God let loose on this earth and it's here in this very room right now and it comes 
Not because people earned it or opened the way, but because God did. He brought salvation. And this is the message that he gives each and every one of us to proclaim. And one of the things that really niggled at me was, is what we share with the people around us and the world around us a message that is good news? Or is it a message that can be interpreted as condemnation? I think there was that one of the things that really struck me is I think that sometimes as Christians we spend a lot of time talking about sin, less time talking about the solution. Whereas God wants us to proclaim the solution to the world that we live in. And that sometimes is a bit more intimidating and scary to do. This is what God is declaring. He came into this world and he's given a message which tells us that he's here not to condemn the world but to try and save it. He's bringing salvation and one of the things that salvation is going to do is to recreate humanity. Bring together a people who love the light and we're going to look a bit more at that shortly but I wanted to highlight it just for a wee second because he's making clear that he, he's creating a people who are comfortable to draw near to the light. And that implies that our lives will have a general level of integrity where we don't feel the need to shrink back and hide. Not that we are perfect, but that we're relying on God. That we are living in the eternal life which he has given us in Jesus Christ. And I wrestled with the question, are we comfortable in the light? And I think actually the question is better asked like this. John 17.3 tells us that the key part of his eternal life is knowing God and his son. How's that going? That for me I think is the key thing. How's that relationship going? Because this is a light God wants us living and it's not actually necessarily about our moral superiority or, and, and of course integrity is important but what God is doing is he's drawing us into his presence. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to live with him. Eternal life is knowing God and his son is what Jesus teaches us in John 17, 3. How relevant is God in our life? How big a factor is he in our life? Christianity isn't simply about doing. It's about being. Being with God. For there, I think it is that we gain the kind of capacity to live the life that God is calling us to. We don't gain it by skill or by effort or by personality traits. And one of the images that came to my mind was of... Now, I experienced this in the nursing home, so this is not related to anyone at all in this room, okay? Like, have you ever encountered one of those old couples that have taken on one another's personality traits? You can see the quirks reflected in each of them. I saw it quite a lot when I was in the nursing home. There was the odd couple. And you could see it. You could tell that they'd spent so much of their lives together in each other's presence that they're reflections of one another in both of them. And for me, this is what I want us to understand about our life as Christians as well. That we should be seeking to spend enough time with God in his presence in relationship with him that we start to take on his traits. It's not actually about us putting all this effort into becoming super people. It's about us actually putting intense and focus into a relationship with God, that eternal life that is spoken about that begins here on earth. So that we begin to pick up the traits of God. 
how do we know how much God loves people? Well, one of the ways we can do that is by spending time with God and in his presence being struck by how much he loves us. And that then can drift on to others. How can we learn how to forgive? Well, one of the ways we can learn how to forgive is to take our struggles and difficulties to God and let him minister to us and guide us and sometimes challenge us a little bit as well. Christianity isn't lived in a vacuum, it's lived with God. To take on the traits of him and to become like him. But I don't think we do that in a vacuum distant from him, trying to do it ourselves. We do it when we're in step with him, living for him to live. Sorry, living with him to live for him. That's the nuance I want to make there. So it's a message of good news, a message where God is drawing people back to him. But yet we can't also avoid in these verses that it does speak about condemnation as well. I remember preaching these verses at at college and it was in sermon class. Sermon class was always one of the most terrifying places to preach. She preached a sermon and then everyone got to rip it to pieces. It was was always a fun process. Um, But I remember preaching, I preached specifically about John 3.16 and about eternal life and how it begins when we turn and, and know Jesus Christ. And at that moment when all the barriers between us and God begin to get deconstructed, that relationship with God begins. That we are part of the kingdom. We are part of Jesus, his reign on earth because it's left in our life because we're living for him. And I was speaking about all of this and making it as positive a message and speaking about how it's not about condemnation. And I remember as I got to the end of the sermon, um, Stuart Blythe's like, you read the other verses because they speak a lot about condemnation. (laughs) We can't avoid it. It is in these verses. So how do we marry what God is saying here? Which is that he has not brought this message into the world to condemn the world, but to bring salvation to the world, to the reality that actually, if people choose to reject the message, there is that condemnation resting upon them. How, how do we marry those two things together? And one of the things that really helped me as I was wrestling with that was um, an, an idea from a theologian called Rudolf Bultmann, and he speaks of um, what's called the dualism of decision. The dualism of decision. I like that phrase so much, I named it my next title. The the dualism of of decision. Because the reality is there is an element of judgment in these verses. We are told that God has come to save, not to condemn yet. But as people respond to the message, there is an element of condemnation in these verses, a strong one. But it's based around human choice. Jesus is God's opening to the world for eternal life. I wonder, have you ever given somebody a really costly gift? Now, I'm a fifer, so I probably haven't. <laughs> but uh, have you ever given somebody a really costly gift? And I don't just mean monetarily with mo- about money here, but a gift that you've maybe put a lot of thought into. And when you give it to them expecting and hoping for a specific reaction, they just didn't get it. Maybe looked and thought, oh, that's nice, thank you very much, and, and put it to the side. That would bother us a lot, wouldn't it? Because we put, we, we put a lot into it, and it was a costly gift. And there's an element here, I think, that God has, of course, put so much into the, probably the most costly gift, in fact, the most costly gift ever given to humanity. 
When it's rejected, that grieves God, but it doesn't just grieve God. It also leaves people in a difficult situation. There is the element of judgment, but choice is the key thing here. We speak a lot about a lot about sin, and rightly so. But here, what Jesus is saying isn't that sin is the key problem. The key problem is how people respond to the gospel. Because actually, the gospel—excuse me—has it's defeated sin. So the sin, sin's not the problem. The problem is. Getting the message of the good news out so people can hear it, respond to it, and hopefully come to a place where they understand it and embrace it. The key factor that's highlighted in these verses isn't sin, because all have sinned. And don't get me wrong, sin is, is awful and it's not diminished. But the key thing is that God is doing something far greater than the power of sin. It's something that redefines everything, and the key thing is choice. What one does with Jesus. How do we respond to that gospel message? And I, wonder, and I ask that question, who is Jesus to you? There is no greater question in all the world than that. Who is Jesus to you? Is he Lord and is he Saviour? If so, brilliant. This adventure with God where, you, where we experience this eternal life begins. But perhaps he's not that this morning. Perhaps he's a historical figure. Perhaps he's somebody we're maybe slightly curious about, but not entirely sure what to do with. That invitation and welcome of God is here. That promise that he has broken the power of sin, that which causes such damage to our life, is revealed and we remember it this morning. And the invitation of God to put our trust in him, to trust that he has done all that is required so that we can experience God afresh is here. If we don't know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, have a good think of it. Have a good think about it. Sin is serious, but God is greater. A few of the other things that I wanted us to cover, but we, we are running low on time, was... Didn't, for us to encourage us not to love the darkness. It causes people to shrink back from God. It causes people to protect what they are doing. It causes people to seek to avoid the light. There's harsh messages about these actions in these verses and how that leaves people alienated from God. God instead is looking for a people who love the light. That cry out to him. I was... After we, we house group on Wednesday night, I found really, really intriguing. We've started a new book on the Psalms, and I encourage you, if you've not been, come along, because it was really, really good. Um, we began with Psalm 1, and we're looking at the, the, the message of it, and what it was saying about how we conduct our life, and how we engage with God, and it really struck me. So the next day, I was um, looking at the daily devotional and I decided I was going to meditate on Psalm 51, which just so happened to be the psalm for that day. And I tell you this, it blew my socks off. It really did because the, the first thing I read in Psalm 51 was this cry to forgiveness to God. But it wasn't about anything that I could do or that I could do as an offering. It was according to your great love, according to your, to your mercy recognizing those traits in God and crying out to him because of them. 
So love and the light does mean we cry out to God. It means we are seeking to draw near to him, that we're looking to walk with him, not because we're perfect, but because we know in the light is a God who is merciful and who welcomes us. And he wants us to walk with him. So to be a people who love that light and seek to walk in it. And to be a people that keep the gospel before others. This for me is, is the primary message. That God has brought salvation into this world. There is only one solution to sin that we believe. And it isn't in people not doing it. It doesn't work. I don't know about you guys, but I've tried it. When you're wrestling with something. You know, I'm never doing that again. It's not going to happen. I've told you the stories about my road rage. It still happens. I'm still wrestling with it. But do you know what? See if I pray before I get in the car. I'm less inclined to do it. Interesting, isn't it? But to keep that message before people. This is the key thing. Sinning and sin is important and the impact it has on this world is devastating. The impact it has on us is devastating. But there is hope. And this is the message that we need to proclaim and live. That God has brought salvation into this world. How we live that is the real challenge. How we share that with our friends, our loved ones, our work colleagues, the people we meet. It's a challenge. But we pray for those opportunities to do so. But keep that message before people. Keep that message in our minds and our hearts. The solution to sin is here. And it isn't in us. It's in Jesus. God's call to us is to trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that in your scripture and your word, we consistently see you as a God that when people go wrong, when people make mistakes, yes, there is consequences, but you are a God who is quick to show mercy. When people turn and they cry out to you for forgiveness and compassion, you hear those prayers and you answer them. And we thank you for that. And we thank you this morning that ultimately this problem of sin, which is throughout this whole world, the consequences of it you took ultimately upon yourself in Jesus Christ. You've brought the solution. It is Jesus. He is salvation to this world. Help us to keep that message and that hope at the forefronts of our life. Primarily so that we can draw near to you. But so that we can have that as a consistent thought in our life as we engage with the world around us as well. Give us wisdom, Father, in how we live and how we share and how we speak. And help us to keep that message that you have given us. That Jesus came, was born as a child, was crucified. He died. He rose again. He reigns at your right hand. And he did this so that people could be liberated from sin and know God as their Abba Father. Make it true, powerfully so in our lives. And help us to live that before others as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If I could invite our musicians back.